I'm sports attorney Luke Fedlam, and welcome to the Protecting Your Possibilities podcast. Each conversation, we focus on sharing information and having conversations around how athletes can best educate and protect themselves or their life outside of their sports. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Protecting Your Possibilities podcast. I'm your host, Luke Fedlam. I'm always excited, as you know. I think I kick off every podcast saying, I'm so excited. I'm so excited to host this person or talk about this topic. But let me tell you right now, I am very excited to have with me uh, a guest who's just one of my guys, my dude, Dr. Victor Kidd. Vic, what's up, man? What's going on, man? Thanks for having me on, man. It's always good to see you, man. Absolutely, man. So glad that you could join us in the Protecting Your Possibilities podcast. Uh, as you know, this conversation, this podcast, is it's always about how we protect athletes. And, and I'll tell you, what Dr. Kidd is doing is really working to protect athletes. So let me just start by giving you all some background on my guy, Dr. Kidd, man, I love to, I just love to say that, man. Congratulations Thank you. Thank <laughs> on you. that for sure. So he's a sports mental health consultant, a sports psychotherapist. He does work with the NBA on some of their initiatives, but I also got to say he also has launched and is the owner of Kid Wellness Solutions and Consulting. I want to make sure I say that again so everybody gets it so you can check him out. That's Kid Wellness Solutions and Consulting, where he has a virtual therapy practice. As we all know, in these COVID times, virtual makes things you know so much easier to be in that safe space of your own home or wherever it is that you find solace and peace. And he's also a sport mental health consultant. So that's a mouthful. That's a lot. Vic, man, tell, tell us more. Like, what is it that you actually do? Oh, man, it is. It is a lot. You know, it's, it's one of those deals where, you know, you just get opportunities and, and life just kind of crafts out these really niche areas for you. And you just kind of it's a culmination of all those things. But at the basis of it, you know, I'm a psychotherapist. You know, I've been a clinical psychotherapist for about seven years now. Um, after graduating from the Howard University, HU, you know, for anybody, <laughs> maybe an HU alum. And so I started out, man, working uh, in substance abuse um, and clinical diagnosis, something that's called a co-occurring uh, diagnosis. And so since then, I've been focusing on trauma as a therapist and things like that. And I went back to school for a PhD in sport and entertainment management. So that's where the sport integration comes, where mm. I was focusing on transition and some of the traumatic transitions that athletes face as they transition out of sport. And also some athletic identity things and stuff like that. But at the end of it, you know, when you get a PhD in sport and entertainment management, the real big thing is how does your work impact sport managers and sport organizations? And so I've been able to leverage those opportunities where I still am a psychotherapist working with athletes in private practice and doing some all-shooting consulting with different member institutions of the NCAA. But I also am able to use my skill set now in regards to me being a therapist and also my doctoral training to impact, you know, spaces, you know, in sport organizations such as the NBA and other organizations that I've worked with. So it was really, really cool. I didn't imagine uh, when you get a master's in clinical social work, it's kind of like this fine line, like you got to be a direct practice person mm. or more like a macro level practitioner. And I never, I, you know, I never thought that both both worlds will merge in my career the way that they have so quickly. Um, yeah. So it's just been really good, man. So the, the online virtual practice popped off in December, which I'm really proud of. Congratulations. Uh, you know, and, it's, and it's so important when we think about, I think this is social work month. 
and I think it's Women's History Month as well. You know, mm-hmm. I've been able to recruit, not <laughs> recruit, that's not like a coach, but I've been able to <laughs> uh, start to work with in my private practice. I have about 16 clients now, and I've been working with black men and black women, which is really important in my private practice. And I have a few athletes that I work with as well, former women basketball players, pro basketball players are trying to transition out of sport. Um, and a few amateur athletes that are trying to get to the next level, man. So it's all come together and it's been really beautiful, man. It's been really beautiful. No, that's, that's great. That's great. Well, congratulations on, on your successes. I, I want to dive into it a little bit because, mm-hmm. you know, you said a term, you know, psychotherapist, you know, sometimes that can be a scary term, right? Like what, <laughs> what do I need that for? Like what's going on? Right. So mm-hmm. how do you make what you do, especially in the sports space? Right. Because when we think about it, we're dealing with athletes that are performing at the highest level. Mm-hmm. Right. And so whether that's at the college level, whether that's at NBA or professional mm-hmm. sports, how do you bring that what could be a scary, you know, kind of technical space where we already know that there's this kind of a uh, it's a scary thing to say, I need help or, I, I, you know, something's just not not right mentally. Like, how do you make that real to athletes and help them understand, like, sometimes, you know, you need that for for your overall well-being, your overall health. But what, how, how do you make that real? I think the biggest thing that really helped me is I am a former Division II linebacker, played at Virginia State, and uh, I am a former high school defensive coordinator, so I have the coach element as well. I think the big thing is just really making it safe. So obviously I'm not going in the session saying, yeah, I'm a psychotherapist and we're going to talk about, you know, all these coping strategies and things Mm -hmm. like that and depression and anxiety. I put it in a way that it encourages a safe space for discussion and how I base it is because we're working with athletes, all of us as athletes, we want to do something that's going to make us more efficient, right? Um, Even, you know, when you run cone drills as a football player, you're trying to get from point A to point B in the most efficient way, right? And so what I try to leverage with with my athletes is just let them know that this is just another part of you becoming more efficient, right? And how becoming more efficient from an emotional and mental standpoint actually leads to better output on the court or field of play. And so it's really important when I situated that way, it's not, you remove that stigma, right? It's not as overbearing, right? And I like to talk to them about just having a conversation. I spend first six weeks really just building rapport. Some people may say, oh, wow, he's building rapport for six weeks. But when you think about a population that is so skeptical because everybody, particularly for our our more premier athletes, Everybody wants something from it, right? And so when you have a population that is really skeptical, it's really important that you create that safe space, use terminology that they will understand, and use this term that I learned early on in my my master's level training, meet the client where they're at. And Mm -hmm. so meeting the client where they're at, you know, is really important. And a lot of times what we see is that it's some incongruency between the messenger being a practitioner and the client. And when you have that incongruency, it's going to be some barriers of communication. I can't tell you how many times I've had people say, oh, well, I had another therapist, but, you know, we just didn't communicate well. Right. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, and, and that speaks to kind of the, the dialectical process of therapy. But at the crux of it, you don't have to have anything wrong with you, per se. Right. I think it's this association with it's something wrong or, or uh, I'm in at or something. So therefore, I need to be here. A lot of times it's really to get better, right? You know, when we look at ourselves as businesses, right? I got a brand and things like that. You want your brand. If, if you want 
you know, see how your books can be different, right? You're going to go hire an accountant. If you're going to see how you can get more notoriety, you're going to hire a publicist, right? And so Mm -hmm. when you want to get better in regards to processing different things emotionally and from a mental standpoint, a therapist is that professional. And so, so yeah, so that's how I really break it down to them. The big T is safe space, creating a safe space. Um, I tell my clients, if you want to come in here and cuss and fuss one session, you can do that. If you want to come in here and cry one session, you can do that. If you want it, whatever you want to yes. do, it has to be client driven. Right. And that's so that's really important. No, that's that's great. I, I think um, I really relate to what you're saying, because it's the same thing on, on the legal side. Right. Yeah. I could talk about all the technical terms that are in this agreement or contract that's being put in front of you and, you know, speak about indemnification and all these different mm-hmm. terms and things that that the client knows nothing about, but what good does that do? You have to, right. like, as you mentioned, you've got to meet the the client, um, the individual where they are. So if you really want to affect change, right? I mean, thank, I right. think that is the, the crux of it. So I, I got to ask, over the past 12 months, obviously the, the world has been dealing with COVID. We all have found ourselves being forced into changing our life routines and athletes are no different, right? Whether it's performing in a bubble whether it's, you know, going through testing and every single day, all the things that go into it and, you know, college athletes in particular, you know, it's basketball season now and you've got, you know, some some basketball players who haven't seen their parents, right? Their their support system in person for months um, as they perform. What are some of the things that you've seen and how, how are what are some things that you're doing to kind of help folks, help athletes kind of cope through uncertain and challenging times? You know, the landscape is really, I was talking to uh, Arizona State's Global Sport Institute and uh, uh, Kenneth Shropshire about this mm-hmm. back in January. You know, COVID for a lot of athletes has just exacerbated pre-existing situations, right? And so the big challenge with COVID is that, you know, it's not necessarily, what I'm saying is not necessarily playing, right? But it's more so the backdrop around what's going on in their lives, right? And so I have a client. He's a big time high school basketball player and his whole family got COVID, right? Mm-hmm. And so really impacted, you know, he had to be quarantined from his family. They had to really try to find different ways for him to get to his practices and things like that because I think the school is playing a kind of like an off league. I don't think the league is actually playing, but they're playing like just to keep the kids in, in good shape. And so those are things that you have, you know, where, you know, his father you know, was significantly impacted health-wise, right? So when we think about just life, taking it out of the space of sport, right, those things can be really triggering, could take away your focus on the court, um, or if you're playing, you know, uh, football or soccer or whatever case may be in your field of play, those things could take away, to wake up and think, wow, you know, my father was in good health on Monday, Friday he was diagnosed with COVID, and then the following Monday, you know, he's on, you know, an air tank, you know, and so... Those different things really impact. It's also, you know, one thing that I talked about how this COVID has kind of changed the backdrop is that before COVID, we, you know, student athletes would, particularly on the collegiate level, were doing certain things that, you know, they had to do, but they also had outlets. Now the hypervigilance around having interaction with people outside of their bubble has been so heightened that you could potentially see anxiety symptoms, right, on their decision making. Mm-hmm. Like if I need to, you know, if I want to do this, if I want to do that. They really can't do it. And then early on, I know some college campuses are starting to have students trickle back in. But before that, it was just athletes. And so um, not really having that social stimulation. And that's impacted us all as a society, right, where 
uh, not having that social stimulation has impacted us, you know, from an emotional and mental health standpoint. Something that I've been having my athletes do is just really meet, you know, the coping strategies that they select are things that they typically do, right? So, you know, diving a little bit more into the to their video games, diving a little bit more into some music, diving in a little bit more of things that are right at their disposal. A lot of times I think when we think about coping strategies and coping mechanisms, I think as therapists, we try to get a little too impractical with what we place onto the client. So if the client doesn't read, right, we may say, well, won't you read, you know, 30 books, right? If the client <laughs> isn't necessarily into journaling, we say, well, you know, a quick coping mechanism is have a daily journal, right? But these things, one, particularly not be culturally responsive, like this might not be something that they've done in their lives, right? Or it could be incongruent with what their interests are. And so when we're talking about developing coping mechanisms and self-care game plans and things of that nature, these things have to be, they have to have some familiarity. And that's what I've been trying to work with my athletes on is just making sure that when we talk about coping mechanisms and how to get through certain situations, that these things are easily accessible and they fit who you are from a personality standpoint. Uh, some other things that I've been trying to trying to work with them on is taking this time to breathe, right? I think when the pandemic yes. first hit, it was a lot of um, lot of what I call productivity shaming. Oh, if you're not grinding hard enough during the pandemic, then I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how you, when you're going to get it, you know, all that type of messaging. And we grow up in a digital age where everyone's scrolling down their, meet, their feeds. And that could be very triggering in regards to depression and anxiety and they're having us operate very sporadically. And believe it or not, a lot of people judge and gauge who they are based on these social media feeds, yes. right? You know, and so you can easily get into a trap with that and it impacting your emotional and mental well-being. So taking some time to breathe, taking some time to understand that we are still in a pandemic. And I think as a society, what we did was we just switched over and just assumed like everyone could go virtual without really considering the nuances and how it can impact us. And Luke, I'm be honest with you, when things open back up, really start opening back up, we're going to go through a different, difficult challenge then just to mm-hmm. people assume that after kids have been home for two years, they're just going to be able to integrate back into a school system or a school structure just like that. And even for the American workplace, just to assume that somebody's going to transition back into their cubicle from working at home for two years is just going to be a tall order. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think some significant challenges I think lie ahead. I think, you know, I'm I'm always ever the the optimist and I try to look mm-hmm. at it to say, well, you know, I hope that we can can be effective in thinking about some of the things that were successful, that we successfully navigated to, like these virtual conversations and things like that, that we find ways to make sure that we don't just try to flip the switch back to our old normal, but realize and recognize that there's a new normal and that with that new normal will come, as you mentioned, some of those new challenges as well. So I want to ask, uh, you know, a little bit kind of broader question, right? Which is, you know, you you touched on it before. I want to try to, you know, really kind of put a hammer on that nail around performance and that, you know, having kind of just that, that mental wellness, having discussions with someone like yourself, that it really goes back to, efficiency and getting better. Like if you had to kind of articulate it, why is it so important for athletes to recognize, to move beyond the stigma and to just recognize the importance of mental health and well-being, the importance of being able to talk with someone? Like when we think about protecting athletes, why do they need to understand and 
Why do we all, whether we're athletes or people around athletes, why do we play a role or, or why is it so important that we play a role in helping to remove that stigma for athletes? Some of my colleagues, when I was like telling them I was interested in working with athletes, they would say, well, why are they so different? You know, I started making comments that athletes were a vulnerable population, which is a term for most helping professionals and most people in public health when they identify a population that may have some some unique challenges or underserved population is mm-hmm. what's really, uh, really used now. And so when we pub all these superstar athletes up since 9, 10, it's a, it's a young kid that lives in my neighborhood. He's out here in his helmet throwing a rock. It looked like he's going to project to run a 4-3 when he's 14 mm-hmm. years old. You know, and he's putting <laughs> – and even myself, I go out and say, yeah, man, you know, you get ready for the season, you know. And he's, like, real excited, like, yeah, Vic, I'm getting ready. I'm going to kill these boys this year. You know, he gets really and, – and, and from socially, we kind of all play a role in facilitating this salient athletic identity or this celebrity, right, whether we consciously yeah. engage in it or kind of subconsciously engage in it. And when we pump these, these individuals up like this and when we lift them up and put them on this pedestal, we have a due diligence to also support them while they're on that pedestal, right? And so why understanding the importance of having individuals – into them from an emotional and mental standpoint is even more important because of that, right? Because of the role that they play in our society. I mean, you just see, I mean, just over the last two, shoot, since Colin Kaepernick to now, athletics has been one of the most polarizing things in our society. And so we usually think that sport is a microcosm, but it's actually a reflection of our society. So it's really, Mm. really important. These are challenges that they're still going to have, right? That they still need to be poured in from an emotional and mental standpoint, right? Just being an athlete just is like a cherry on top. But they're still going to have instances of depression, instances of anxiety, challenges with trying to figure out life discovery. I have a few clients that are between 21 and 28, and they're just on this seesaw of, I want to do this. No, I want to do that. I feel lost. I feel disoriented. And these are just individuals that are just regular people in our society, regular young people. So when you think about athletes, you know, putting that on top because they have to have to pour so much into what they do, right, it, it makes it even more difficult. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about performance, you mentioned performance. Something that is really, really important to understand is that athletes, the last thing that I never went to my coach and said, I need help trying to get ready for camp, right? I need help trying to increase my deadlift. I knew that was something on my squad. On my, I knew that was something that I, I, I had to do to start, to play, to keep my scholarship. And it was something that I was really well versed with. Now, the other stuff, as far as misogyny, right, as far as other different things that I was going dealing with as a football player, those different things, I really could have used some support because the locker room doesn't necessarily foster a healthy emotional <laughs> environment, right? Right, right. And so when we think about being more efficient, right, I, I would give you an example. I've worked with a basketball player. He had real bad performance anxiety. Come to find out his parents – we're really having, you know, this so was some infidelity. It was, you know, some it was a very unsafe space in the household, right? And once I started doing some family work with the basketball player with my client, forgiving his parents for their behavior, for them to communicate, improving their communication, improving love, improving all these other different things that was going to make the household a safe space again, the next year, performance anxiety went away. 
he was killing it. He was going to AU mm-hmm. tournaments. He was going to open gyms. He was telling me, man, I'm playing free. He started averaging 20 and 11, you know, and it was kind of a weird switch for him. What I had to teach him was he thought he necessarily needed help with performance. I need to get better with performing, but it's your outside world that it really needs to be addressed because this is the, yeah, thing. This is the difference. This is the difference. When I was coming up, I'm 31 years old, just 31 years old. So I'm, I'm maybe 16 years older, 17 years older than this particular client. When I was coming up, social media was just coming up, but sport was literally an outlet, right? Literally an outlet. I put the phone in my locker. I'm going out. I'm at practice or I'm at the game, whatever the case may be. I'm at film or whatever the case may be. Today's athlete, particularly our amateur athlete, they could go to an open gym, go back and get their phone, and then they see somebody tweeting about, oh, well, so-and-so didn't perform well at this open gym. Or so-and-so is ranked lower this week because in his class because he hasn't performed. These things could be really, 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 really triggering and really have a very significant impact. So I say that to say that sport is no longer a, a buffer or a protective factor like we think it is to right. the outside noise. That has really that's a, that's has been a real change. You know, we talked about somebody that we know where they made a decision and then it's like instantaneously it's all over the news, right? It's all over the news, even just small things from a transfer to playing time. These things even impact our amateur athletes at the high school level. And so playing and using sport to get away from the noise is, is not necessarily as pure as we as it once was. I hear you. I hear you. Well, listen, man, you are dropping gems out here for everybody. Thank you so much. I, I got one last question that I got to get you out on, but um, we're running short or over on time. So let me just ask you this. Give me your response as succinctly as you can, man. Virginia State University for undergrad, Howard University for your master's. Now, you got your PhD at South Carolina, but two HBCUs. Tell me and tell our listeners the importance of our historically black colleges and universities in society today. Oh, man, it's, it's so important. You know, I'm so grateful to Virginia State and Howard University because Virginia State allowed me to kind of kind of flounder and find my way and give me that that uh, positive reinforcement. Sometimes give me a little kick in my butt <laughs> to, try to get to where I needed to be. So I'm so forever grateful to my uh, professors there because they gave me tough love, but they, they, they gave me love that I was familiar with, right? My professors kind of reminded me of the, the matriarchs in my family. Um, and also the men there was really important for someone who necessarily didn't have his biological father, like really, really involved. Um, and then Howard University saw, I was so grateful to them. They saw uh, uh, what, you know, the potential I had as a student and really held me accountable as a young black man and a young black man practitioner. If you want culturally enriching experiences for someone that looks like myself and look like you, Luke, the HBCU experience is the way to go. And it is the key to cultivating our future, believe it or not. As as a former professor over at Benedict College in Columbia, South Carolina, so many times that I've seen people say, oh man, I, I wish I went to an HBCU for my students that were at South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it gives us a space to learn and to figure things out without having to consider any social, any law socially, right? That we, you know, we will be at a disadvantage socially. So HBCUs is love. Shout out to all HBCUs across the spectrum, even the smaller HBCUs that don't necessarily get 
enough notoriety. Shout out to Claflin University down here in South Carolina uh, that is doing some really good work, South Carolina State. Um, and even Johnson C. Smith, they're doing some good things. They got the eSport thing going. Mm-hmm. So shout out to all those institutions, but they are the future. They are the future, believe it or not. Yay, absolutely. Well, listen, thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Victor Kidd, sport mental health consultant, sports psychotherapist, all around great dude. Vic, man, thank you so much for joining us today. For sure, for sure, Luke. Thanks, man. I appreciate you. Absolutely. Thank you again for tuning in to the Protecting Your Possibilities podcast. If you found value in today's episode and our past episodes, please do rank it, share it with your colleagues, with your friends, with your teammates. Subscribe so that you get our content every single week. Protecting Your Possibilities. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll talk again real soon. Porter Wright, Morris & Arthur LLP offers this content for informational purposes only as a service for our clients and friends. The content of this publication is not intended as legal advice for any purpose, and you should not consider it as such. It does not necessarily reflect the views of the firm as to any particular matter or those of its clients. Please consult an attorney for specific advice regarding your particular situation.